Our message this morning is entitled, Imaginations. Imaginations. Before we introduce that to you, I couldn't help but notice a phrase in Psalm 138, which was our scripture reading for this morning. Psalm 38 and verse 1, I will praise thee with my whole heart before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple or holy temple, and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. The phrase, before the gods will I sing praise unto thee, is a phrase that I found particularly interesting because Scripture is emphatic that there is but one God. And so what does the psalmist David mean when he says, Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee? The world is full of gods. Now these aren't real gods. These gods have no power. These gods are images and idols and graven things. And in the midst of a world full of gods, of idols, of images, of things that men and women have created and conjured and produced and exalted and set in a position of, in their mind and in their heart, lordship, David proclaims, in the midst of all of these false gods, I will sing praise unto the true and living God, unto the real God. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. This psalm has to do with much of what will talk about today as we consider the subject of imaginations, because I think as we begin to develop this thought before you, we'll see that many times our own imaginations become a sort of and invent many sorts of idols that have a position of lordship over us in our own individual lives. And so our message today is on the subject of imagination or imaginations, and Scripture uses that word imagination and imaginations in both a singular and a plural sense. And we'll consider what the Bible has to say, and I think the point that we'll begin to see developing is that when Scripture uses this term, unlike the way we would use the word imagination today, Scripture uses it in a very negative way. In other words, that which is imagined is something that is very sinful, something that is very corrupt and many times in opposition to God and His Word. As we think about imagination to us, an imagination is a great thing. In fact, if your little ones didn't have a great imagination when they were growing up, you probably worried about them. I can remember when Ethan was a little boy, and when you have your first child, it is a world of firsts. And when you have your second child and your third child, it ceases to lose that magic, if you will, for lack of a better term, that the first child had. When Ethan was a little boy, he had a bucket of sticks that lived on the front porch, and these sticks were shaped like swords, and they were shaped like guns. And to us, they just looked like sticks, but to Ethan, it was an AK-47 and an M-16, and this is a samurai sword, and this is a knight sword. And to him, all of these swords or all of these sticks were various weapons that he would take and do battle with imaginary creatures in the yard. He never had to 
fight with orcs or zombies or demons or monsters in real life, but in his mind, he would sit out there and fight with all sorts of creatures that no one else saw but himself. And thinking back on that time in his life and in the lives of our other children, it is a time of great imagination. When we use the word imagination, we think of the vivid creativity in the mind of a young person. The contemporary definition of imagination provided by the great theological commentary Google uh, is the faculty or action of forming new ideas. And so you might look at an engineer or an architect as they plan out a project and you might think that that individual has a great imagination. They thought of a beautiful design. They thought of a very functional building. They put together ideas and came up with a plan that would serve the people very well. And in our mind, that is what the word imagination means. Again, the faculty or action of forming new ideas, images, or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. And so we use the word imagination synonymously with that of creativity. Creativity. Creativity is a good thing. What is the root word of the word creativity? Create. What was the first act of God in our physical universe? In the beginning, God created. Creativity is a good thing. So as a disclaimer this morning, understand that we're not saying that imagination in a young child is a bad thing. However, we will look at the dark negative type of imagination that we have as it relates to our lives and our minds and the great darkness that has permeated our imagination, creating very wicked things, evil things. Creativity is a good thing. We are made in the image of God, and so naturally we have great creativity. I love to illustrate the way that we're made in the image of God from the perspective of creativity and an appreciation for diversity and beauty. God, in the beginning, created a universe that was a paradise. It was beautiful. It contained great diversity. He has an appreciation for beauty. And when we depict that, when we display that in our lives, I believe that we're walking in this image of God in which he created us. God was pleased to create the light that pierces through darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. He created the beautiful leaves that are on the oak trees and the beautiful grass on the ground. He created flowers that are beautiful and they exist, sure, for a functional purpose to pollinate the crops that we eat, but at the same time, there are trees and things in this world that exist purely because it pleased God to make something beautiful. And I believe that we display that in our personal lives. We have an appreciation for beauty, and God is a God that was pleased with diversity. He created great diversity in this land. Not a single one of us in this room look identical, which is a great irony here because we have sets of twins here. And as identical as they might look to me or to you, I can guarantee you that the parents of the twins can tell them apart immediately. And it takes us sometimes years to be able to tell the twins apart. And, and when we say the twins, I can have reference to any number of people here because we have, again, several number of twins who are a part of our church. And even the identical twin 
is not identical in the way that they look if you begin to examine them very closely. God is pleased with diversity. He created diversity. We have different hair colors, eye colors. We have different frames and statures and skin complexions, and God is pleased in the diversity. If you look at heaven and pictures of heaven in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5.9 and Revelation 7.9, you see that there's even great diversity in heaven. Before God's throne, there is a people out of what? Out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. They all look different. They're all from different backgrounds. The only things that they had in common was that they were descendants of Adam, and so they were sinners, and that Jesus is their Savior, and that He has washed them whiter than snow as far as their sins are concerned. And it's a very amazing thing to think of the diversity that God is pleased with. We love creativity, and creativity is a good thing. God is our creator. We live in a creation. We are made in his image, and so we appreciate creativity. But the word imagination, as it's found in Scripture, is overwhelmingly and almost, almost entirely used in a negative sense. In fact, I found one word, or one occurrence rather, in particular when imagination was used in a positive sense. Every other time the word is used in Scripture, it is a negative term. The first occurrence of the word imagination is found in the book of Genesis chapter 6. Now, Genesis chapter 6 is a very notable chapter in the book of Genesis and the Word of God and also in human history. In Genesis 6, humankind has existed for a millennia at the time in which the events of Genesis occur, humankind went from being perfect and upright in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Adam transgresses God's law. Adam becomes a sinner. They have children. Their children are made in the image of Adam, according to Genesis chapter 5, that is. And as you know, by this point, Adam was indeed a sinner. And so they come into this world no longer in the perfect, upright, spotless image of God, but they come into this world in the marred, polluted, corrupted image that Adam fashioned them in when he violated God's law and God's command. Because of this, we are by nature the children of wrath. Because of this, we don't seek God, understand God, desire God, etc. Because of this, we are hateful and hating one another, Titus chapter 3. Every problem that humanity has ever faced is because of the transgression of Adam. I had a conversation with an individual this week who got in a social media group and began to boast of his rejection of the biblical concept of original sin. And he was boasting that people aren't conceived in a way that makes them evil and wicked and depraved, but everyone is basically good and they just choose to do sin. But notice here in Genesis 5 that Seth, Adam's son, which was a good son, Genesis 5 and 3, was begotten in Adam's likeness. What was Adam's likeness? Sin. Complete sin. And so because of this, we're conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity, as Psalm 51 says. You have to do great and elaborate theoretical, theological, and grammatical gymnastics 
to escape the reality of original sin from Genesis all the way through Revelation. We are sinners through Adam. We were represented by Adam. He chose for us, and since we are but Adam multiplied, we enter into the world exactly in the state that he was in naturally when he fell, when he became a sinful being. That is our condition. A millennia passes. And as bad as it was when Adam was exiled from the Garden of Eden, as we'll see because of imagination, as the Bible uses the term, men became worse and worse and worse in their behavior. Now, depravity is depravity, and we are conceived in the image of Adam. We come into the world like Adam was. But society becomes worse and worse. And we'll contrast this with a passage or compare it with a passage in Romans chapter 1 in just a moment that also mentions the imagination. And I believe that that passage in Romans 1 gives us the tailspin of humanity from the beginning of time when all men knew that we were living on a creation, that God created us, that we're accountable to Him for our behavior. All men are accountable to Him for their behavior. They reject that concept, and you begin to see the tailspin into depraved works on a societal level, the building and ramping up of evil in the world because men reject the concept of the Creator because of their imaginations, because of their imaginations. Genesis 6 came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, that daughters were born unto them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. He also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. This isn't saying that the lifespan of men is reduced to 120 years, because if you read the genealogies prior to this, they were hundreds of years old when they died. This is saying that humanity on this globe has but 120 years, and I'm going to destroy man from the face of the earth. That's what that phrase means. There were giants in the earth in those days. What does that mean? Giant people. And by the way, when we talk about giants from the Old Testament, we don't have reference to someone who is 40 feet tall. This isn't Jack and the Beanstalk. It's not the Jolly Green Giant. It's not a 40-foot tall man. Goliath, in the Old Testament, a giant, was at minimum 9 feet, maximum 11 feet. Is it possible to have a 9-foot man in the world today? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so this is something that occurs in the world even today. There were giants in the earth in those days. And after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, let me just clarify something right here. This does not mean that angels, sons of God, had children with women, daughters of men, and these became overlords over the world. That's a common theory in the world today. Jesus comments in the Olivet Discourse on pre-flood human society. And how does he reference men marrying women? Does he say angels marry women and they had amazing children that were people of renown that ruled over the world and so I flooded it? No. He says, at the end of time it will be as it was in the days of Noah... 
they were what? Eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. He quotes that with reference to normal marriage. So what then, what then does it mean the sons of God came to the daughters of men? The family was corrupted. Good people married people who were wicked and carnal. Believers married unbelievers. And because of that, the family suffered. And when the family suffers, society goes down. The problems we have in society are not the fault of Washington, D.C. Now, there are problems that come from Washington, D.C. We want to blame Washington, D.C. If you watch Fox, you want to blame the party with the D. If you watch MSNBC and CNN, you want to blame the party with the R. Let me tell you where the problems in society come from. The breakdown of the home. It's been that way from the beginning of time. When the home is not right, through society, everything else in society begins to crumble. Why? Because that is the institution that is responsible for bringing children up with discipline and morality and love and kindness and reverence for God. And when those things break down, it has an effect on every other part of society. God created three institutions in the world, the family, the government, and the church. Family and church are to yoke up together, but it is the responsibility of moms and dads to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. When the family breaks down, society, well, it ends up in the gutter. This is the first institution that God made. It's a very important institution. And when it was corrupted, what happened to society? Well, let's keep reading. Genesis 6, 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That almost seems redundant. Every imagination, that means everything he imagined, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a threefold statement of the condition of a man's heart. Every imagination was only evil continually. Everything he thought was totally evil in an unbroken perpetual stream. This is why John in the book of 1 John talks about men who were not born of God as he that committeth sin. He doesn't have reference to people who were saved can't commit a sin in their life. We sin all the time. What he has reference to is people who only commit sin. A natural man's heart is only evil continually. It is an unbroken, perpetual stream of wicked debauchery, outright sinfulness, rejection of God. And God sees this, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. He regretted the fact that men lived in the world. He regretted it. You don't find many occurrences 
of something grieving God at his heart in the word of God. And yet it grieved him at his heart because he had made man in the world. Why? Because men were so given to wickedness that, turn down to verse 11, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. The world was violent. The family breaks down. And as we'll see from Romans 1, people reject the concept of accountability to the Creator. They replace the Creator with idols. They turn from idols to all forms of immorality. And the next thing you know, the world devolves into violence and chaos, rioting in the streets, murders. And because of this, God sends a flood to the earth 120 years later, and He destroys mankind from the face of the earth. By the way, this isn't the message for today, but what was the difference in Noah's life? You might think Noah was a good man. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was a good man. He was obedient to God to make an ark to the saving of his house. But you know what the initial difference in Noah's life was? Look at verse 8. There's a word there. I want you to notice it. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Unmerited favor is what led to the difference in Noah's life. Why are you different than the world around you that is full of chaos and violence and every imagination of their heart, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually because you have found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God for grace. Praise God for grace. The word here, imagination, every imagination was only evil continually. The Hebrew word here means a thing framed, something that is made, framed, as earthenware or an idol. As earthenware, which would be like a clay pot, or an idol, a meditation, or a thought. That's a very generic definition, isn't it? But I want you to latch on to that phrase. An imagination is like an earthenware or a thing framed such as an idol. Imaginations can be idols to us. And that's where we're eventually going to come to today. Imagination as an idol. Now let's compare Romans chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 6. And if you've been here any number of years, you know that this is one of my favorite passages to preach from, especially coupling the two together. Romans chapter 1 Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The, hold, or the word hold there does not mean to subscribe to. We're not learning in Romans 1.18 about people who hold to the doctrines of grace or hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. The word hold there means to suppress or to wrestle. So Romans 1.18 is not talking about the child of God who believes in the truth and finds himself in some sinful way. Romans 1.18 is talking about carnality and depravity of man as it is found in society. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against this. Now, Paul, being the gospel preacher that he is, engages in a tangent and he answers that statement in verse 32. 
What is the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness? Verse 32, they which commit such things are worthy of death. The wages of sin are what? Death. By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. Romans chapter 5. And so when Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness, how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness is death. God does not deem humans worthy to live forever in their natural state. In fact, when God exiles man from the Garden of Eden in the beginning of time, Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His eyes are open. He becomes a sinner. There's another tree in the garden. Now, there are all kinds of trees in the garden. But there's another specific tree in the garden, the tree of what? Life. And God exiles Adam so he cannot eat of the tree of life. The imagery there, we are unworthy to live forever in our natural state. We are unworthy to live forever in our natural state. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In that, all men die. Because that which may be known of God, this refers to those who hold the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.19. That which may be known of God is manifest in them. God has showed it unto them. The fact that you are alive, that you have a beating heart, an eye that detects and interprets reflected light that enables you to see the world around you, that you have ears that detect sound waves and interpret those sound waves, a brain that processes all of these things, you're fearfully and wondrously made. All of that testifies to you that God is you do not have a creation without a creator. You do not have a house without a carpenter. You do not have a network without an IT man. You do not have a cabinet without a cabinet maker. The list goes on and on and on. The very fact that you are alive and standing here today hearing this sermon testifies to the fact that we have a creator. We are made in his image. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, which tells me that there is something that could be known of God to all men. Now, there are special things that we know of God through the Holy Spirit. And after being born of the Holy Spirit, there are things that we can learn of God through the word. But there are things that even the natural man can perceive through studying creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. A carnal, unregenerate ought to have enough sense to look out at creation and say, you know, there just has to be something that created us here. There's just no other way around it. A couple of years ago, we had an eclipse here. And it's kind of amazing that the sun is some 400 times larger than the moon. So much larger than the moon. And yet, they line up perfectly in the sky. 
to create a perfect covering during a solar eclipse because the sun just happens to also be 400 times away further than the moon. And atheists, astronomers scratch their head and they call that the greatest coincidence in astronomy. Maybe it's made that way. You have the electromagnetic spectrum that covers all these different types of light and radiation, and yet our eyes detect this tiny little sliver that is visible light, almost as if they're made that way. Well, surely they must have evolved. Could you imagine all the blind animals walking around wondering, what portion of the electromagnetic spectrum must I develop eyes so that I can see that portion of the light spectrum to know what's around me so I'll stop bumping into trees. It's made that way. The more we learn about the complexities of technology and the more amazing things that we're enabled to do, it just makes me appreciate the wisdom and the creativity of God. Because our bodies are infinitely more complex and powerful than your iPhone, than your computer, than your DSLR camera. We're running as fast as we can to catch up, and our minds process more than all of them combined. It is an amazing thing. That which may be known of God is manifest to them, so that what? That they are without excuse in their atheism. In their agnosticism, they are without excuse. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, in the beginning all men knew that God existed. All men. Cain was of that wicked one. Cain has a conversation with God. Now, is it a pleasant conversation? No. Because Cain is full of wrath. We preached on Cain and Abel recently. He's a carnal man. He's jealous of his brother. His brother presents an offering by faith. God accepts that offering. Cain is of that wicked one. He is enraged. He kills his brother. And he hides his brother's body. Cain converses with God before and after that. But he was yet an unregenerate. But Cain, like all humanity in those early generations, knew that we were a creation with a creator to whom we were accountable. Accountable to him. What does Cain say when God issues his punishment? My punishment is greater than I can bear. No, it's not. You murdered somebody. Every breath you take for the rest of your life is an act of long suffering from God. Every breath you take. You don't deserve to live. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You killed your brother, Cain. He understood his accountability to God, painfully so. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but what? Became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Is that not the M.O. of humanity today? 
and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. Now, what does the imagination do? It creates an idol. Change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. The word image is synonymous with idol. When the Word of God in the Old Testament, the second commandment in the Ten Commandments, gave the law against the prohibition against graven images, an image there was an idol. It's not saying it's wrong to take a picture. Some people have interpreted it that way. Well, you can't take a picture of somebody. That would be an image. That's not what that's saying. It's referring to an idol. We're not allowed to make idols. But the imagination creates idols. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart. He turns them over. They press forward it and He lets go. He turns them over to it. And it is a judgment. And then it gets worse and He turns them over and it gets worse and He turns them over. God gave them up unto vile affections because they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. That's idolatry. And so God gave them up unto vile affections, humanity. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. That's not what God invented that for. He created intimacy to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. He gave them over to a reprobate mind. The word reprobate means void of judgment or lawless. Understand when you see lawlessness begin to pervade a society, it's usually indicative that they've been turned over because they were so rebellious against God. If you want to read the things that take place after this, you have... Unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And so as you read in Genesis 6, and the earth was filled with violence. What led to that? Imaginations. Imaginations. Now to further give you a little bit of a flavor of Scripture's teaching of imagination and imaginations, just going to hit a few high points briefly. Proverbs chapter 6, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates those things. Those are not the things that we might envision to be the top of the list that God hates today, are they? In fact, they're things that we might even be guilty of from time to time. Heaven forbid. Concerning some of the wicked behaviors of this world, that falls under a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Likewise does feet that be swift in running to mischief. But we find things here such as pride, bearing false witness, and sowing discord among brethren. God despises those things. Most of the references of the word imagination are found in the book of Jeremiah, however. And this isn't going to be an exhaustive list of all of them. I encourage you to take your concordance out and read some of these. 
But the book of Jeremiah is absolutely full of references to imaginations regarding the children of Israel and their proclivity for sin and rebellion. Jeremiah 7.24, They hearkened not nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imaginations of their heart, of their evil heart, and went backwards and not forward. That's backsliding. They turned away from me because their hearts were given to their own imaginations, the wicked things they conjured up. Jeremiah 9.14, They've walked after the imagination of their own heart and followed after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. And so he gives them vengeance, and he sends a sword, and he consumes them. Verse 16, what did they do? They walked in their own imaginations. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 8, Yet they have obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their own evil heart. Therefore will I bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. Now, if you're wondering what that reference is back to, the words of this covenant... If you go over and read Deuteronomy, beginning in about chapter 28 and read through chapter 31, God gives them all of these curses that if they do X, Y, and Z, certain things are going to happen to them. And he says, this was a covenant that I made. If you break the covenant, if you violate this contract, this will happen to you. If you be willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. But if not, what? You will be devoured by the sword. And so, here... Jeremiah condemns them for what? For their imagination. What caused all this? Their imagination. Jeremiah 16, 12. Ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, you walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land into a land that you know not. That's referring to Babylonian captivity, where they were servants and slaves for 70 years. Neither ye nor your fathers have known this land, and there shall ye serve other gods day and night, where I will show you, where I will not show you favor. That sounds dreadful. Now, the most dreadful part of that is they're going to be serving idols. Because they forsook God, God cast them away from the Holy Land, and where they're in the other land, they're going to be serving other idols. If you read the book of Daniel, you see that even their names were changed. Even their names were changed. Was Daniel's name changed to Belshazzar? What's the root of that? Bel. B-E-L. What is Bel? False god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those were the three Hebrews cast into the fiery furnace, but those were not their original names. Their names were changed in accord with Babylonian culture. Nebuchadnezzar, the king that took them over. What's the root of Nebuchadnezzar? What name is Nebuchadnezzar framed after? Nebo. Bel boweth, Nebo stoopeth, as Isaiah wrote, prophesying of the destruction of Babylon before there was a Nebuchadnezzar to be destroyed or a Babylon to be destroyed. Isaiah wrote of that 180 years in advance because God gave him word. Jeremiah says, you're going to be carried away into a land where they're going to make you serve their gods. What a terrible, terrible judgment that must have been. Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah 3 
uses the word imagination, but I want you to notice that God foretells of a day when men will no more walk after the imagination of their evil heart. And might I say that Jeremiah chapter 3 is a beautiful prophecy of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 3, look at verse 15. I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Some people interpret this as the final state of humanity, saved humanity, that is, heaven. But to me, this says too much regarding our experience and our need in this world to have reference to heaven. This is talking about the church. Now, the church is an earnest of things to come. The church is a down payment and a foretaste of things to come. But this is talking about the church age. God gives pastors which feed us with knowledge and understanding what is taking place right now on planet Earth at this geographical coordinate. A pastor is attempting to feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind. The Old Testament is no more. Neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, Neither shall that be done anymore. The Ark of the Covenant. No more. Why? Because Jesus is our mercy seat. The top of the Ark is the mercy seat. In the New Testament, that word for mercy seat translates into the English word propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is our mercy seat. As they come to the empty tomb, have you ever noticed where Jesus' body had lain? There are two angels, one on each side. What does that look like? The mercy seat. What does the ark tell us hundreds of years before about Christ? I mentioned this the other day. But God appears over the ark. Inside the ark is the law, the Ten Commandments, God's moral code that we broke. What stands between God who is offended and the law that we have broken? The mercy seat. What stands between you and the law that you've broken? Your propitiation, your appeasement, your atonement, your mercy seat, Jesus. The ark doesn't come into mind. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. That has reference not to the physical Jerusalem, but Mount Zion, the church of the living God, Hebrews chapter 12. All the nations shall be gathered unto it, here we are, all the nations. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. The New Testament is a day in which the nations of the world, through the gospel, first through the Holy Spirit, then through the gospel, all because of the shed blood of Christ, no more walk after their own imaginations. We turn from our idols. Now turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There are not many occurrences of the word imagination in the New Testament. This is one of my favorite passages and it is one of the references to the imagination. Let's begin 
in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, that is to say we are living in a flesh body, flesh and blood and bone, we do not war after the flesh. Our warfare isn't physical. For the weapons of our warfare, parenthetical statement, are not carnal, that is to say not swords, not spears, not shields, not knives, not guns, not grenades, not tanks, not planes. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You can read the weaponry, the armor of God at the close of the book of Ephesians. Paul wrote of the armor of God. We do not war after the flesh. That phrase ends in a colon. Skip to verse 5 around the parentheses. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Imaginations live in your mind. That's where we create them. That's the shelf in which we place them. As the idolaters of the Old Testament would go out into the woods and they would cut down a tree and they would fashion it in the shape of an idol and they would plate it with gold or maybe they would carve it out of a rock. They sometimes would cast their metals into a fire and they would cast all sorts of idols, the golden calf, for instance. In our minds, we create these idols and we place them on our shelf and in the secret recesses of our minds, we worship them. We worship the idols of our minds. And the Bible calls these what? Imaginations. Imaginations. Through the mighty weapons of God, we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring into captivity, we arrest, we apprehend every thought to the obedience of Christ. What is it that you and I are to do as disciples? Not only to bring our physical bodies in accord with some sort of rigid moral command for the display to all the world, that's Phariseeism. Christianity is about service to God from the inside out. Now, might I just say that if we bring the thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ, the actions are going to be easy, or at least far easier. If I control the mind, then the actions, the body, is going to be easier to bring into subjection, which we are commanded to do every day as we take up our crosses daily and follow Him having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Casting down imaginations. Casting down is language that applies to idols, which brings us back to that definition that we considered from the first occurrence of this in Genesis chapter 6. An imagination is something framed as an idol in our mind and through Christ and the weapons of the Holy Spirit, the armor of God, we cast down the idols in our mind and we bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I think it's important to remind you of Proverbs 4.23, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The word keep 
1611 word that has reference to a prison. A keeper is a prison guard. And so a way to say that in today's time would be to guard your heart. To guard your heart. Guard your mind. Guard yourself of the influences of this world. This past week I thought on this subject and meditated upon this subject a lot and produced a little bit of a list of what I would define as imaginations. And as we talk about imaginations, I want to also define them not only in the sense of that which is idolatrous, idols that we make in our mind and then we pay homage to them in our mind, the thoughts that we nurture and build that are wrong, these are also tormenting thoughts. Was it a judgment when Israel worshipped other gods? It was a judgment. Was it a very pleasant thing? No, it wasn't. It was torture for them. You see, the, the false idols, the bales of this world, the demonic influences, they don't seek your good. What does the enemy come to do, according to Jesus in John 10? To steal kill, and destroy. And so these imaginations in our mind, they're tormenting thoughts. They afflict us. They torment us. Sure, a few of them with you. First of all, some of these imaginations could be lusting to do anything that is wrong. This would be sinful fantasies. If you notice in Romans chapter 1, you had the imagination in the heart that led to the idolatry and then it furthered until it led to all sorts of sexual immorality. I guarantee you, if you mortify the thoughts of your mind as it relates to lust, the physicality of all of that is going to be far easier to be victorious in. If you don't, menfolk, if you don't let yourself think about anybody other than your wife, then when some temptress comes along, Read Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs talks about this. Strange women who stand at the doorway and say, My husband is not home. Won't you come in and visit? And you young ladies, let me just say that there are men in the world just like that after you. But Proverbs is written from a father to a son. If I have brought my thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ, when the seductress comes along, then I have the strength and the preparedness to say, get thee behind me, Satan. I used to have a way of doing this, you know, when I was young and people are still single and, you know, the one out of 5,000 who would actually walk up and say, hey. Uh, but I went to a party to pick up a friend of mine because I was going to go race cars and he was there with, you know, a bunch of people partying and this young lady comes up dancing to me and got closer and closer and, and I have a wedding ring on my finger and it was like instinct. I just put my wedding ring like three inches from her eyes. She's like, oh wait, I, I'm not. I'm like, yeah, you're right, you're not. Go away. Number two, tormenting thoughts, imaginations, envy and jealousy. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. We recently spoke on this subject. Envy, the green-eyed monster. When we're envious, 
there are two things that take place in our heart. First of all, we're coveting that which God has not given us. And I like to think about things in this world. If God thought I needed that in his infinite wisdom and counsel, and it was something that I wanted, and it was okay to have, first of all, if the Bible says it's not okay for you to have, it's not okay for you to have. But I want it. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry, Puddin'. If I'm supposed to have that, and it's good and wholesome, then I trust God, and if he thinks I need that, then I will have that, eventually. Covetousness and envy go hand in hand. We covet something, and so we are envious when other people have it, even to the extent of resenting the blessings or the talents of other people. It is a great sin to resent the blessings and talents of others. Number three, pride. What a destructive imagination pride is. And you noticed it in some of the language we considered. Pride was an ingredient there. To think I am better than any other person. What does the Word of God exhort us to do? Not to think of ourselves higher than we ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man among us the measure of faith. I should not think higher of myself than I ought to think. Even Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. And he gave us the practice of the washing of the saints' feet to bring the point home to our minds that we are to be servants and not masters. Pride is one of these tormenting thoughts. Here's one for you sisters. Excessive fear or worry. You ladies don't worry about things, do you? Never. What torment does fear bring? In our Bible, or excuse me, in our radio broadcast this week, we were in the book of First John, chapter four, and love casts out fear. Fear has what? Torment. That imagination tortures you. What does Philippians exhort us? Be careful for nothing. The word careful doesn't mean cautious there. It means full of care. Don't be full of worry. Conversely, what are you to do? You are to trust God. My mom had a saying when I was a little boy because I would sit and worry about things. We all do. And it was, Ben, don't worry about that. The things that we really worry about the most rarely, if ever, actually happen. Number five, the approval of others. What a, what a cruel Lord this is to young people. It can affect old people as well. John says to try the spirits, the influencers. When a person is a celebrity on social media, we refer to them as an influencer. Now, you know, I'm a Facebook person because that's what generation I'm from. Young people like Instagram. And they look at these people who look perfect and they want to dress like them and be like them and act like them. Rachel told me not to say this. Don't say that. A few years ago, did you notice in every photo, every young lady wanted to look like a duck? Why did everyone want to look like a duck? I don't know, but they did. Because somebody cool did that on social media, and now we all want to do it. Guess what? You don't have to want to do what they're doing because it looks like it's cool. They don't know you exist. And if they knew I existed, maybe they're watching. 
I don't care if you don't like me. It does not make me lose any sleep at night that as ungodly, wicked, pagan celebrity, influencer, whatever, doesn't think that I'm the coolest thing that has ever walked the face of the earth. I already know I am anyway. Number six, <laughs> anger and general negativity. Negativity is a cruel, cruel master, especially over imagined things. Imagination takes a little negativity and a little ingenuity, and the next thing you know, you're mad at somebody for something that didn't even happen. One of Brother Hewlin's favorite sayings is that to hold a grudge against someone is like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to die. The only person you're hurting is yourself. Beloved, be thankful. Find your identity in Christ. Accentuate the positive things in your life and trust God. You're His child. He loves you. He cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this portion of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've warned us against imaginations. We ask, Father, that you'd help us to mortify them. We want to cast them down. We want to bring every thought to the captivity, to the obedience of Christ. And we pray, Father, that we begin committing to that even today, anew today. We pray, Father, for everyone in this room. We love them and we care for them. And we just ask your richest blessings upon them. Help them trust you and be thankful for all that you've given to find their identity in you and their worth in you because anything that we have that's of value you gave to us and you valued us so much that even when we were your enemies you gave yourself for us we ask all this in jesus name amen